and gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Daniel Digger! This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by The Dispatch and Dispatch Media. We are still doing our big uh, 30-day free trial um, hootenanny, so if you want to do that, you still can. And it's not like the clock is running out on your 30 days. You get your 30 days whenever you sign up, but it's in this, is, this is thing is running through the end of the month. And if you do it, you can get access to all of the double-secret awesome stuff that uh, uh, the non-paying members, non-paying subscribers have been able to get. Um, please do that if you can. Um, it would mean a lot to me, and also it would get Steve Hayes off my back. Um, today's episode is brought to you by um, our friends at Donors Trust and our friends at Express VPN. More about them in a little bit. Okay, so I'm very excited about today's episode. It's been long in the making, and I and part of it is that I've long wanted to get uh, my old friend, Ron Bailey, in the actual studio. Uh, I, I worked for and then with Ron 25 years ago, and we've been very close friends ever since. So that's all the full disclosure you get. Uh, but he will attest that I often give him a really hard time. So um, there may be some uh, pushback on some of his wild-eyed ideas. And we also have his co-author, uh, Marion Tupi, who's also a more recent friend, but someone I'm very proud to call a friend. Uh, Marion is the director of what at Cato? Humanprogress.org. Humanprogress.org, which is affiliated with Cato. Yes, okay. yes, absolutely. And uh, Ron is the science correspondent at Reason and author of many um, important and useful books. And they are together the authors of 10 Global Trends Every Smart Person Should Know, semicolon, and many others you will find interesting. And I will say at the outset... Um, First of all, there is a, there's almost an electric vibe of Julian Simon's ghost coming off of the book, um, and I'll explain that in a little bit. But it is a, it's actually a physically lovely book, and I highly recommend it not only for the contents, but for it's basically a really useful kind of coffee table book because people will pick it up and look at it, and, and certain kinds of people will be horrified by its optimism, and you will have many a good conversation started that way. And we'll get more into that in a little bit. Uh, Ron, Marion, thank you very much for being here. Delighted to be with you. Thanks for having us. Okay, so um, longtime listeners of this podcast know this is my um, uh, favorite question to ask because it's my favorite question to be asked when on a book tour. What's your book about? <laughs> <laughs> well, the title says it all, 10 Global Trends Every Smart Person Should Know. Uh, the genesis of the book was, uh, I've been writing on a lot of uh, environmental and scientific topics for decades now. Uh, and what I kept realizing is, is that, you know, you can write a big, thick book with all the information in it, and people will buy it and so forth. And But I wanted to get the information to people very quickly. And so I had this notion that, well, what I should do is a picture book. And so this, in a certain way, is a picture book. The way it's designed is to be really, really simple. We give you a trend. And then we give you 250 words telling you what the trend is. So you have a chart with the data. We also link to give you links to where you can find the data. Right. The data are uncontroversial. They're from mainstream sources everywhere. Scientific literature, government reports, that kind of thing. And so my idea was to boil down a lot of complicated things so, so that really smart people who are very busy people would be able to get that data and use it and, and understand it quickly and move on with their lives. Yeah, um, I think it's, 
a very good thing for smart people to have. I also think it's a very good thing for, I'll be delicate about this, journalists to have. Um, and the Venn diagrams between very smart people and journalists do not overlap completely. Um, and even the ones who are very smart, some of them are pretty lazy and they buy into normal tropes and narratives in the media and the narratives are all very, very negative. And this is, you know, it, not that. It is the, it, this is the stuff that a lot of people in the media don't focus on because it's not bad news, right? Uh, yes. And, but we think, you call it optimism. I think of it as basically realism. It's factfulness, as it were. We're looking at trends that people don't pay attention to. The problem with smart people is that they are worried. They look for uh, around the world. They see problems. They want to address the problems. They're trying to solve the world's problems. The problem with that then is that you don't look back and see how many problems have already been solved, how right. far we've come over time. And so very smart people need to take a breath, step back, and go, you know, yeah, there are a lot of problems out of the world, but look at all that we've solved. And we can talk about how, how that occurred. I also want to do a shout out to uh, Mary and Tupi because when I was explaining the genesis of the book, this had been in my head for a couple of years. And finally, I went out to, to lunch with him and said, Mary, would you like to help me with this? You have a whole website, humanprogress.org, devoted to this kind of information. Right. And he kindly agreed to help me. Thanks. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it was a great pleasure to do so. Uh, I've never written a book before. And before 10 Global Trends, Ron already had six books under his belt. So, uh, um, uh, you know, I was anxious to write a book, but also having somebody who's written a bunch of books before um, filled me with the sort of confidence that you need to to, to move forward. I sort of, I assumed that Ron would know um, what to do, what not to do, um, and push me where it needed to be or pull me back. And um, he quickly found out that I didn't know what I was doing. But anyway... <laughs> But overall, it's been a very good experience. And again, as I said, I have a book out of it for the first time in my life, which is very important. Although uh, we should also disclose uh, you, Marion, were extremely helpful um, for the appendix of Suicide of the West that tracks a lot of these similar themes that I have in the back of the book about human progress and how the Enlightenment wasn't necessarily all bad. Which is That's being, right. And, and you also had a similar idea in terms of, you know, producing a, a, an illustrated version of, right. of the appendix. Um, and yours is actually properly illustrated with, uh, you know, stories of human beings, etc. Whereas ours is just graphs. But those charts that we produce are very easy to understand. Anybody can do that. And um, as Ron mentioned, the idea is not to have a book gathering dust on a bookshelf, but to have it um, sitting on a on a, on a table and then people can come in and maybe have a drink, maybe have a glass of wine and then open the book and start a conversation. So, um, Yeah, I was just, when I was going through this over the weekend, um, and I will be just fully honest about this, I told my daughter that she should really take a look at this for certain classes. She's going to be a senior in high school. She just started her senior year. And... I said, but you know what you probably want to do if you're going to use this for papers is go to their sources and cite those. Because if you cite this book from Cato, your teachers will know that it's not supposed to be trusted. But if you cite the UN or the World Bank source and all that kind of stuff, um, I said, I promise, Ron, you know, Mr. Bailey, as we call Ron in my household, will not be mad. Um, and I actually, but I do think it's it's an important point. I think it's, I mean, smart people, great. 
um, a lot of students who want to be contrarian about a lot of things because they're all fed this doom and gloom stuff yeah. don't know how to do it. And giving them a sort of an easy resource that goes through this stuff, I think, is, is very useful. So let's move on. I, I mentioned the Enlightenment before, and much like my hopes for our society generally, I'm hoping we'll come back to the Enlightenment later. Um, Me but, too. <laughs> <laughs> but for right now, um, let's just sort of start with some of the trends, and you, I'll just drop them like hockey pucks and we can talk about it. One is that should be familiar to a lot of listeners here, anyone who read my book, is the great enrichment. Why don't you explain what that is? That's the big fact, right? That's the right. biggest one. Well, the, the, the big fact is that throughout all of, almost all of human history, uh, uh, income was about $500 a year per person or lower right. uh, up until around 1820, and at which point it started taking off exponentially. And as we document, uh, uh, global income, the great enrichment, increased 100-fold since 1820, and while populations only grown eightfold. So basically, uh, what we find is a huge proportion of humanity has been lifted out of the normal natural state of abject, ignorant poverty. Right. And so we want people to realize just how fast that was. And so we have a, a long-term trend looking back hundreds of years to, to see how, to, to, to demonstrate how, how great a magnitude that is. The other thing that we do is we do some extrapolations. Well, what's it going to be like in 2100? And people go, no, the world economy can't be a quadrillion dollars in, the, in real dollars. And we're going, well, if you look, uh, the last century, it went up tenfold. Mm -hmm. Why wouldn't you expect it to go tenfold over the remainder of this century? But also, the pace of enrichment is increasing, right? Correct. Um, it's spreading faster, too, which goes to the second right. trend. Right. We'll get to that at the end of poverty in a second. I just, um, I, uh, yeah. If I can just say, and, and if you want to make this uh, a little more personal than mm -hmm. just to say quadrillion dollar, economy. We have another trend which is devoted to income per person per day. Right. So one way to think about it is that in year one, whether you're religious and, you know, it was time of Jesus or you want to talk about the Caesar Augustus, um, GDP per person per day globally was two dollars, mm -hmm. roughly, thereabouts. It doesn't matter whether it was two and a half or one and a half. Right. It's the order of magnitude that you want to look at. And um, by the time of the Jefferson presidency, uh, global income per person per day grew to about two dollars fifty. Mm -hmm. Now today, it's forty dollars per person per day globally. And if uh, the current trends continue, in, in other words, if we are able to repeat the rate of growth that we had over the past hundred years for the next eighty years, global GDP per capita per day will be. $170 mm -hmm. in today's dollars, which right. is to say that somebody in the middle of the pack, let's say somebody living in Malaysia or, or and, and so forth, will be making close to $200 per person per day in today's dollars. Now, that's extraordinary. So, um, I'm indebted to Deirdre McCloskey. She, this is a big part of her um, her argument about stuff, and we can get to the the poli sci parts of it in a minute. But when I go around giving speeches about my book and all this, I, I make this similar point about, you know, I use $3 a day. Mm -hmm. But, and people look at me like I'm crazy, right? And, and I, and one of the points I always make is that there's really no debate about this, mm -hmm. right? I mean, like, this is something is sort of fascinating to me is like, the debate about where capitalism comes from, lots of debate. Mm -hmm. The debate about the fact that as you say, whether it was $2 or $3, 
or let's go crazy, four dollars per you know per capita. Basically, Marxists agree on that. You know, there's there. Have you found anybody who has ever pushed back on this basic data point about how the shape of the curve, not necessarily the numbers, right? Because people can argue about the math differently. I really don't. I can't remember his name, but there's this idiot, uh, this uh, distinguished <laughs> anthropologist in in uh, in the UK who has argued. Well, the problem is you're counting money. In the old days, when people were supposedly impoverished, they had community. They had much better lives. Mm -hmm. Sort of the old primitive communism argument of Marxism. And said, they weren't poor because look at all the other riches they had. Yeah, Jason uh, Jason Hickel. Uh, I that's think he's who it is. LSC yeah. in, yeah. in London. I've talked to him before and I try to find common ground, but it's not really easy because he tries to sort of force all information through this uh, bottleneck of Marxism, and then whatever comes up out right. at the end, you know, is perfectly consonant with his uh, with his priors. And uh, the, yes, it may be true that uh, a lot of stuff that people needed they could grow on their farms mm -hmm. uh, and in their villages. But it was an extraordinarily difficult um, way to live. I mean, you you know you lived, you worked all day all all day long, all year long. Your entire family did. If one of you fell sick, well, it was a major disaster because, of course, you lost a pair of hands, whereas the, the, right. you, you got somebody who needed to be taken care of. So um, it was a very difficult um, standard of living, and we know what life was like because we do have actually eyewitness accounts mm -hmm. of what Europe was like before the Industrial Revolution. Right. Uh, whether you look at work by Fernand Braudel and his eyewitness accounts or whether you look at uh, somebody like Cipiola's um, great book on Europe before 1700s, um, you know, life was really extremely difficult and, uh, and it wasn't the sort of bucolic notion of the past that we inherited from the romantics who really have done a terrible disservice to humanity. Yeah. I mean, if you just look at, I mean, I, I get the point that someone's trying to make about some Rousseauian tribe in a perfect climate living with bountiful fruit and vegetables or whatever, but the record is pretty clear. It's like, that's an enormous number of children died before at birth or before their first year, before their fifth year. About a third of all children die before their fifth year. Yeah. And, so, and average life expectancy. I mean, if there was so, you know, average life expectancy hovered around 30 years for almost all of human history. Right. Which, and uh, relevant to some of us nowadays, uh, only 4% of people ever made it past age 65. And... And as as William Manchester would point out, most people lived in a world lit only by fire. Yes. <laughs> you know, which is, a quality of life issue. A fabulous know? book you should read after this one. Yes, it is a great. Book. Um, uh, yes, that, that was a great book. Uh, one last comment on this um, um, from me, and that is that, um, that uh, of course, every time that humans who live in uh, underdeveloped societies get a chance to embrace economic development, they opt to do so. Right. And I think that very often people who poo-poo economic development and economic growth are sort of people who have spent their entire lives in the West and who haven't lived or visited poor countries. I grew up, well, I spent part of my life in Africa and uh, I haven't met a single African who felt that their future was going to consist of living on a uh, plot of land 
and making a living that way. Every single one I met wanted to live in a city and have a, a blue or white collar job, but they wanted to get away from the farm as soon as possible, much to the annoyance of Marxist governments in Zimbabwe and South Africa who want to return people to the land. Right, right. Okay, so speaking of returning people to the land, um, your second important trend, which is deeply tied to your first, as you noted, is the end of poverty. Right. And Um, that's the flip side of the great enrichment. Part of the thing, of course, is you hear a lot of people say, well, sure, the 1% got rich, but what about everybody else? So we wanted to show with the end of poverty, no, this the wealth has, in fact, been vastly expanded across uh, all of humanity. And so what we find is, depending on which trend you want to go with, in 1820, 90% of people lived uh, in abject poverty, as defined by the World Bank as $1.90 per day per person. And it went down all the way to 41% by 1980. So basically 160 years to get to the point where we'd cut abject poverty in more or less in half. And now it's down to 8.6%. Right. So since the millennium, it fell from almost 30% to less than 10%, uh, which is, which is uh, remarkable. And, and uh, once again, just to note, uh, Jason Hickel and the argument that he's been making uh, is that, of course, living on $2 a day and just over $2 a day, um, we shouldn't really celebrate that because uh, that is very low and 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 so forth. Except that that poverty is declining whether you take a two dollar per day mark, right? Four dollar per day mark, five or six or seven dollar mark a, a, a day mark. Uh, at all of these levels, right. more and more people are now earning more adjusted for inflation. So that's that's another good sign. Yeah, I mean, if you have a long locomotive with lots of cars. It's true that the front of the locomotive is going to get to the destination first, but every other car on the train is going in the same direction is sort of the point you're making. That's a very good analogy. I'll I'll steal it if I can. It is my gift to you. Um, (laughs) Um... But, but this would be as though the back cars on the locomotive were speeding up faster in the front. But that's yeah, 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 fair enough. That's a good point. No, that's a good point. It's a good point, right? Because, I mean, um, and we should actually talk about that for a second. The, um, the, when people say poverty is ending, I mean, the, 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 the gradations of poverty, I mean, one of my peeves is, I, I, I think, as an analytical matter, not as a moral matter, the West's decision in its own countries to define poverty on relative terms rather than objective terms, which is right. I mean, we should not tolerate American citizens living at, on $2 a day, right? There's something that should be done about that. At the same time, it puts it in perspective that when we talk about poor people in this country, by any measure historically, they're not poor people. And even today, they don't really... If you if you if you do those, I mean, I, there was Robert Rector. There was some iffiness with some of his stuff, but his basic point that if you do these consumer surveys or these census surveys of what people, what poor people declare to have in their yeah. homes, and you do, if you objectively describe the color TV, the air conditioning, all of these things to a poor person, poor person in Cambodia or Zimbabwe, they would say, "Wow, you're rich," you know. And it's yeah. and again, I'm not trying to say that we should be cavalier about our own poor people or cavalier about other poor people, but it's an important way to the remi- thing to remind yourself of. Right. As, what we're trying to do is to point the long-term trends again. So right. you have that as the backdrop for you to consider these other important relevant questions with regard to how poverty should be measured and treated in the United States. 
It's just, again, to give people a background. Um, okay, so let's move on to number three. Number three. Um, and now we're really... In in the seance for Julian Simon, this is when the table starts to move. Um, are we are we running out of resources? And I'll hand it off to to, to Marion on this one. Um, no, uh, simply we are not. Uh, Julian Simon. Uh, we should explain who's Julian Simon. Yeah, Julian Simon was a professor uh, of uh, of economics at uh, University of Maryland. He died far too young, I think, in nineteen ninety eight or so, uh, but. He was, the way I think about it, the original optimist. May I, was there somebody, was, a, was there a precursor? I don't think so. Um, Simon was the guy who basically went against the entire doom and gloom of the 1960s and the 1970s. And uh, he was the first one to say that uh, humans are intelligent animals who are capable of innovating their way out of um, out of shortages, um, you know, when when you have a uh, sudden um, superabundance of food, uh, the rabbits will procreate until the moment when they consume everything, and then there is a famine, and basically they all die. Humans are not like that. Um, we are much more thoughtful about our procreation, but more importantly, uh, whenever things start getting expensive, we find a way of of getting around that, mm-hmm. and we can do so through, uh, for example, finding. Substitutes. We no longer use, uh, um, I don't know, um, whale, uh, whale, whale spermaceti for candles uh, like the founding fathers did. Instead, we use electricity made from fossil fuel. Or we save, uh, we, we no longer, uh, here I'm drinking a Diet Coke, and out of a pound of aluminum, you can now make many more Diet Coke cans right. than you could um, um, many years ago. And so, um, and so Julian did this. Um, a bet with uh, Paul Ehrlich, who is still alive uh, at uh, where is where is he in, uh, uh, he's Stanford? At, he's still at, he's Stanford, at Stanford, and I would be a, I'm not a very nice person, but when I heard that Julian had died, I went and Paul Ehrlich lives, <laughs> <laughs> which and, was not a Jefferson Adams reference. No, or anything. It was not. <laughs> and they had a bet on uh, on five commodities uh, between 1980 and 1990, whether they would become cheaper or more expensive. And basically, Julian Simon won that bet because um, those five commodities became cheaper by something like 56%. Now, so what I did uh, with a co-author called Gail Pooley, he teaches uh, in Hawaii, what we did, we looked at 50 commodities, not just five, but 50, mm-hmm. uh, over a course of close to 40 years. Um, and uh, what we found was that uh, uh, real prices are down, meaning mm-hmm. inf- inflation adjustment. And uh, relative to human labor, these 50 commodities have declined by almost 75%. So the, way I, the, the reason why I don't like really to just uh, evaluate prices in terms of real prices adjusted for inflation is because they don't take into account increases in income. Mm-hmm. A time price, in other words, how much time do you have to right. uh, work in order to earn enough money to buy something is a much better way to look at it because it, it does give you that real price adjustment, but it also includes increases in, in wages. And so the time prices are down about 75% over the last 40 years. So we are not running out of resources and we are very much unlikely to do so in the future. Yeah, the best indicator, at least by, by my lights, no pun intended on that, is the amount of time it takes to work to produce Light, light, yeah. Right. That was uh, that was that Nobel Prize winning economist Nordhaus. Nordhaus, yes, Nordhaus. Yeah. And what he found was that in 1800s you had to work roughly 
um, what is it, five hours of labor in order to afford one hour of reading light. Mm -hmm. Five hours of labor for one hour of reading light. By 1992, which is where his uh, paper ends, this becomes insignificant. It's tough to measure. In other words, uh, the uh, one hour of light costs something like 0.0002 seconds. Right. And so that gives you a sense of, of how cheaper things have become. Not, not everything in America has become cheaper, but commodities certainly do. Yeah, when you, when, you, when you go back and you read about how expensive candles were at the time of the founding, oh yes, the idea of leaving your lights on, you know, interminably, I mean, the, you'd be burning down a fortune in candles if you oh, were yes. doing that you know, 250 years ago. But I, I, should, I, I should also try to prompt Marion to talk about his new book, which is going to extend a great deal of this. And how far are you going back with these uh, trends with regard to time price? And can you give us a little hint of what you've done? <laughs> so we're going back to 1850. Okay. Uh, we have uh, something like two dozen commodities going back all the way to 50, uh, 1850. And... Um, uh, the, the further back you go, the more the more staggering the, the 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 size and the scope of the human accomplishment is. Basically, everything has become uh, substantially cheaper. Uh, we call it because uh, the prices that we measure are actually declining at a faster rate than uh, than uh, uh, population is increasing. In other words, uh, there is that wedge that more right. people you have, the faster prices decline. We call it the age of superabundance. Mm-hmm. And we'll explain it in the book. But uh, the bottom line is, is that there is actually an inverse relationship between population size and, uh, and uh, resource prices. What we find is that for every 1% increase in human population, prices of resources decline by 1%. And that's certainly counterintuitive. Okay, so one, we'll have you back on for that book. Thank you. Uh, Two, I assume a big chunk of that is just division of labor, right? There's a... You've, tried, uh, not so much, no. no okay. it's, it's more about innovation. So, in other words, it's humans' time freedom, uh-huh. right? Because you can have... Well, a, I, but I was sort of yeah. including that in that. Every additional human is the... Odds are you're increasing the chance of some problem solver. It's, yes, that's on exactly a problem, right? right? That's exactly yeah. right. Yeah. Um, so it's not just bringing more people. I mean, you could you can imagine a a country with a billion people, which is dirt poor. There we there we mention which China, <laughs> for example, People's Republic of China, dirt poor, even though they had a lot of people, because those people who lived in China couldn't actually produce innovative ideas. They couldn't interact. They couldn't publish. They couldn't talk to each other. And 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 the system wasn't set up for them to accomplish anything. Okay, so that raises the, the question I was going to ask as a sort of a detour on this. Um, you're talking about human accomplishment. You're talking about how Julian Simon, who um, Ron and I knew a little bit. I mean, Ron knew him better than I did. Um, but uh, he used to come and visit Ben Wattenberg, this guy we both uh, work with. And he was a... A bullion fellow. Um, and, <laughs> he was uh, indeed. <laughs> but, and I'm sure you have an answer to this, but when you say, you know, humans are problem solvers, humans have figured out ways to substitute for scarcity and replace items that are becoming scarce and all that, I, as a generic proposition, I agree with that. At the same time, what you were just saying now about China demonstrates that it's not just the presence of human beings, that there are externalities, right? There are, you need certain systems to allow human beings to do that. Because, um, you know, the thing I, one of the guys I think gets the, in some ways, the the worst rap um, out there is Malthus. Mm. Because Malthus was prescriptively completely wrong (laughs) 
But retro, retrospectively, mm-hmm. he was kind of right, right? He was describing the world as he had seen it at that time, but he was at the inflection point where that was all going to change. Yeah, no, exactly. But I mean, I... I no thanks to him. No, I, I, agree. <laughs> I agree. I agree. But, you know, he's, he's describing the world the way it worked for a really long time. Yes. And hopefully will not work again, but could. Um, we could go backwards. And... And so the point is, is, I mean, we're skipping ahead to the Enlightenment, but the point is, is that uh, just the presence of human beings, as clever as we are, we're also really good at keeping human beings from being clever, yes, right? Yes, we are. Okay. We yes, absolutely. Uh, it, it has to happen within uh, within an atmosphere of freedom, which is where Enlightenment comes into it. So you boys take it away. <laughs> okay, well, well, we'll come back to it in a minute. Um, all right, so let's... Do you know anything about the Enlightenment? Let's run through... Uh, <laughs> let's, let's, I, I mean, they're all great, and there's a lot more in the book, but... um. Let's just do population and a couple others really quick. Um, you guys say we're heading towards peak population. And if your thesis is correct, that more people means more innovation, then that maybe could be a problem too, right? But anyway. Oh, I don't think it will be. Basically, uh, as everyone of your listeners may or may not recall, actually, come to think of it, Paul Ehrlich back in 1968 and his uh, wildly popular book, The Population Bomb, said... Uh, predicted uh, in the 1970s, hundreds of millions of people are going to starve to death despite any uh, programs embarked upon now to prevent that. There's just going to be a massive famine, and the death rate was going to increase massively over that period of time. Uh, it didn't happen. Uh, years later, in, 19, in the early 1990s, I had an opportunity to uh, uh, interview Paul and ask him, so are you happy? You know, and he said, no, Ron, I got my timing wrong. It's going to happen. I said, when, when? He said, well, the famines, the great famines will happen between the year 2000 and 2010. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Those were really rough. I remember this. Uh, yeah. So, <laughs> and so here we are in 2020. But um, what, for, there are all kinds of, of, of reasons why it was wrong, which are explained fairly well in the book. But what we are seeing is, is that human population is, is nearing its peak, most likely. Um, it doubled over the course of my lifetime. And you younger people will never see it double again. Mm-hmm. It, that's over. And uh, depending on which trend you want to go with, but I particularly like the work uh, done by a demographer named uh, Wolfgang Lutz because he's been very correct in his predictions so far, is that world population will probably peak just under 9 billion people and around 2060 and then decline to about what it is now by the end of the century, if, if he's correct about that. And what that suggests is all kinds of things, that people have control of their reproduction, that women are no longer oppressed by men, that, that you have a society in which offers people other opportunities besides, you know, sleeping together at night in their huts, uh, you know, f- figuring out how to enjoy themselves. I mean, it's basically a world where wealth and innovation allows people to control their reproduction and then decide what they want to do with the rest of their lives. And one of the drivers of that, though, is that in modern economies, kids are less a source of free uh, well, manual no, no, labor, I, right? As I also tell my younger colleagues, basically all children are essentially a luxury consumption item now. Right. Certainly so, in my household. You should, you should basically inform them that. Um, oh, there was one point, I mean, I, I know we're going to come to enlightenment stuff later, but there was one point I wanted to make about the reason why I did the detour in the first place about how you need the right sort of system of liberty and system of, 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 um, of innovation that makes these kinds of things possible. And that's why I want to talk to you about donors trust. John and Jane have college age children. And it wasn't long before the couple discovered 
the world looked different when viewed through the new college lens. Since then, they've been supporting classroom and other foundational programs that teach the principles of economic liberty, rule of law, and free expression. They could have written personal checks to accomplish their goals, but instead, they opened a donor-advised fund at Donors Trust. At Donors Trust, they knew they would spend less time on administration and more time having an impact. A donor-advised fund is like a charitable savings account where you can manage your giving in a smart, tax-advantaged, and private way. Donors Trust is unique, working with donors at all levels who share a commitment to the freedoms and principles that strengthen America. Donors Trust's philanthropic advisors can help you sharpen your giving, discover new groups, and define your charitable legacy. Join the community of liberty-minded donors at Donors Trust. To see how a donor-advised fund could benefit your giving, go to donorstrust.org slash dingo for their six reasons to use a donor-advised fund. That's donorstrust, all one word, dot org slash dingo. We thank Donors Trust for sponsoring today's episode of The Remnant. Okay, so back to trends. Um, the end of famine. Uh, I, our friend um, Alex Tabarak, uh, he tweeted something which I was really, really embarrassed not to know. And um, are you going to embarrass me too? Okay. No, 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 no. <laughs> I mean, this is the kind of thing that I just. I, well, you know, this is the kind of thing that you should have lectured me about twenty-five years ago. But apparently, March Sen made this argument that um, that he proved that famines weren't actually caused by a lack of food. They were caused by a lack of income. Is, is that right? Um, at least that's the way I read the tweet. And I just never heard that before. And he made it sound like it I was like... I thought Amartya Sen's point was that there are no famines in countries where there is free press. Correct. Uh, oh, is that what it is? That, okay. I, I think that was the point that he was making. Um, Ron already alluded to the... Pr- predictions of doom and gloom by Ehrlich. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm, uh, you know, when I was growing up in the 80s, I remember distinctly uh, the images from the Horn of Africa, um, children with, uh, you know, uh, swollen bellies and, and flies uh, on their eyes yeah. all over. And that was supposed to be the end, uh, the, the end point of humanity. But on our calculations, which we include in the book, Uh, Since the early 1960s, the amount of calories which is available to every human being on average has risen from about 2,200 calories to about 2,900 calories. Mm -hmm. Now, let me step back a little. This doesn't mean that every human being on Earth has access to anywhere to to 2,900 calories. What it means that right now we are producing globally 2,900 calories per person per day. Um which is about 900 calories more than what the United States Department of Agriculture recommends that an average American should eat per day. Now, there are huge differences, obviously. An elderly female should be eating much less than a physically active male and so forth. But on average, we need access to about 2,000 calories per person per day. We are producing about 2,900. In sub-Saharan Africa, the Access to calories today is roughly where Portugal was in the early 1960s. Hmm. And um, I think there are only two countries left in the world where the production of calories is under 2,000. One of them is in Africa. I think it was Madagascar. Mm -hmm. I don't remember where the other one is. Um, So I'm I'm guessing Yemen. (laughs) 
could, could well be. And, and so, um, we're going to hear from the Yemeni tourist board any day now. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so what you're, so and, the, and obesity in Africa is now becoming a serious problem. Yeah. A new study from uh, Kenya has shown that obesity in amongst African women, especially, uh, reaches what, 25%. So that's quite a huh, it's Still below America. But. So, <laughs> the, <laughs> you know, earlier Ron was saying how um, the average, you know, people think that it's just the top 1% who are taking all these gains mm-hmm, from. Mm-hmm. Um, how is the distribution of these calories I mean, is is the one percent taking a lot more calories, or the top ten percent taking in, a lot in more? In Sub-Saharan than, Africa, no, around the yeah. world, right? Because yeah. that's some that's some yeah. place where I could see the average being a misleading, yeah, indicator, right? Because sure. it, what is the median person eating, or what is the bottom quintile eating, or is is food scarcity, which I think most people associate as probably the primary thing with poverty. Yeah, is the poverty is the increase is the, is the eradication of poverty? Are those trend lines in lockstep, or or are they not necessarily correlated? I'm not making my point. Oh. If I look at the chart uh, where we were talking about before about the train with all the cars, everyone's moving in a good direction. The 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 enrichment in the world, the line looks like that hockey stick, yeah. right? Does caloric intake? look like the same chart or right. is it so very different you have to be more granular when you get to um food consumption and things like that um let me make two points one is that sub-saharan africa is really the place that matters because absolute poverty has now disappeared from the world as a serious concern it is now an african problem mm-hmm. not a global problem uh, absolute poverty is an african problem that's where 90 to 95 percent of absolutely poor people live and will live so that's when you get you have to get more granular and and see what's happening in different countries so obviously in countries which now are beginning to have serious problem with obesity um that is not simply calorie intake by the top one percent but mm-hmm. but a serious number of people especially in the uh, in the urban areas right. uh who are who are now uh, who are now beyond getting well fed then you have a problem with especially uh, rural areas in places which have been heavily economically mismanaged places like Zimbabwe and that's mm-hmm. where the hunger is real and but so hunger is largely a political problem more than hunger is most certainly a political problem yeah. nowadays in 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 Africa yes um basically wherever there is famine there is political mismanagement civil war something horrible is going on the government's right. trying to suppress somebody uh, that if if you if someone says there's a famine so and so the next question I ask is well who's who's starving the people right okay so this is one I'm actually keenly interested not that I'm not interested in starvation and poverty and all these things but it's something I sort of I'm, I've long been sort of fascinated in in part because the stuff Ron wrote in the 90s about all this um, more land for nature right um, we have a whole bunch of different charts that. Right around that, but, right? Because yeah. I mean, it's 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 peak farmland. For example, is one of them. We right. Also, so explain what peak farmland is. Uh, it's basically we've already achieved uh, peak farmland was probably around the year two thousand. Basically, the land that is devoted to producing food for humanity basically peaked. Then, a lot of the peak was involved uh, the fact that we are growing more uh, protein, particularly beef and that and cow yeah, and uh, sheep and so forth on less land over time. We're still increasing the amount of, uh, of arable land, that is cropland, but only slightly so, and that should peak fairly soon. 
basically what we're doing is we're growing a lot more food on a lot less land over time. And so that means some of the land will likely and has been reverting to nature. Mm -hmm. And that has all kinds of benefits. As land reverts to nature, it also helps solve any of the problems we have with biodiversity decline because you leave more space for for wildlife to to flourish. Um, That basically happened on the East Coast a long time ago, right? It did. I mean, for I have a cabin in the woods, for example, that used to be a pasture, and now it's a 45-year-old forest. <laughs> yeah, because um, I remember writing about it, how you can, in, you can walk around the woods in Maine and st- discover among pretty big trees right. stone walls that used to surround a house, but the farm is gone. Well, for, right. for just an, this is off the top of my head. For example, Vermont was once 80% deforested. It's now 80% forested. Yeah. That kind of thing. Um. All right, so as a slight digression, um, we got a raging inferno on the West Coast, and um, everything you hear well, these I mean, days is that it's it's climate change related. Um, well, it, it is climate change related, but it is also massive amounts of forest mismanagement for decades. Right. <laughs> so you combine the two, well, you get what you get back there. So. Okay, so I mean, we can we can get to climate change, and and for some of my uh, more uh, uh, skeptical hmm. uh, listeners, Ron had a um, uh, an about face on on climate change about a decade and a half ago, something like something that. Something like that. Yeah, yeah. and so uh, um, you were one of the few people who kept talking to me after that. Yeah, so, <laughs> so few issues that I think should intrude on personal friendships, but. Um, I mean, I can name some, but we won't. <laughs> uh, um, but I thought, for example, that at least as of a few years ago, that the models the LA Times were touting, where I'm a columnist, um, was that California is going to get wetter, not drier. Um, so how does that... It's, it's funny because I was just looking at those trends today because I'm going to be writing about the fires in California this week. But uh-huh. anyway... Pro or con? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, All right. Yes. Um, but so what? Actually, they've had a few very wet years, and what uh, in in the, in the last decade or so. But the trend is to a greater drought over time. Uh, but there's something called the Palmer uh, de- uh, Drought Severity Index, which, if you look long term again from 1900 to now, is trending downward. But basically, it, the state is becoming drier. But part of what happened is they've had a couple of very wet years where you had all this vegetation grow up, and it wasn't burned or ameliorated or anything else. So now you have a lot of kindling for a fire. That's right. That's what's happening. Okay. Um, urbanization. Yay. Yes. I know I know you're in favor, and I, I know Mac Iglesias has got his, his Billion People book. And um, uh, make the case for why urbanization is a, a good thing. I'm in favor of it, but I mean, what's your argument? Yeah, um, partly it's linked to innovation and economic growth. If you have a lot of people together in one place, um, connected to each other, I, I realize that may not be as important in the future as it is now, as it has been so far. But so far, having um, a lot of companies and a lot of people in one place communicating together um, uh there is a reason why cities have always been the drivers of progress. It's not just New York. It's not just uh, L.A. It was Florence. Um, it was um, 
Amsterdam, it was London, wherever you have a lot of people together, that's where you will find um, most money, most high culture. Um, and um, um, so so that's the reason why... It's a kind of network effect. Network mm-hmm. effect, yeah. yeah. And and who knows? I mean, maybe in the future with COVID and everything and, 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 and people will... People will no longer put a premium on, on living in the cities. But historically speaking, cities have been the drivers of economic and social progress. I mean, if you are a minority uh, who didn't have a uh, you know great time, uh, whether you are gay in Florence or London or whether you are black in New York, that's where you want to be. So that's one thing. The other thing is that cities are per capita more economic, more uh, environmentally uh, friendly, which is to say that a typical person living in a city burns less fuel uh, and less electricity and has lower impact on on environment than people who live in the countryside. And those would be my top choices why cities are good. I, I could add to that one of the things about the trends we're looking at is is that pro- perhaps by the end of the this century again, maybe as many as ninety percent of all humans will be living in cities. Mm. If the trends continue. And what that means, if you're looking at population trends, is that basically right now we have about 3.5 billion people living on the landscape. You know, a lot of them are subsistence farmers in Africa and that kind of thing. These people will all be moving to cities where they will have new economic opportunities, educational opportunities, entertainment opportunities, and therefore depopulating the countryside, once again, allowing more land to revert to nature. So I think that's also a benefit. Yeah, what was the... The medieval phrase was Stadtluftmachtfrei. Stadtluftmachtfrei. Yeah. Um, city air makes you free. Right. So if you lived in a city, if you came from the countryside and maybe you were uh, a, a serf of a nobleman, um, but you were able to live in a city for a year and a day, you became a citizen of the city and therefore free man. Right. Yeah. But the, so I mean, the, I mean, not, we're not going to get deep in the weeds on zoning policy, but... <laughs> Uh, oh, let's do. No, but this, I mean, <laughs> this I'm kind of, I keep meaning to like really go to school on all this stuff, but I mean, this is a point you've all and I have talked about a bunch is that um, historically, for exactly the reasons you were saying, cities were this place where very poor people could find work. And the move towards zoning, you know, is it's actually closing off this vital organ of sort of the economic body politic to transfer, to, 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 to train up poor people. I mean, this is one of the reasons why, you know, I was always, I've talked about this before in the podcast. Um, as a kid, I was always fascinated. You go to Europe and you find out that all of the crappy, dangerous neighborhoods are in the suburbs and in America, you know, particularly you always talk about the inner city being, so it turns out once you dealt with crime, you then had, which was good, but then you had this knock-on thing, which was less good, which was forcing, all the rich people moved into the cities, forcing poor people further and further out into the periphery. And so now more and more in, in the U.S. cities, it would be interesting to see with the COVID stuff how some of this might change, but we are basically making it much more difficult for poor people to live in a city, in a major city, to work in a major city. Um, and get on that rung, which I think is sort of hugely important. Just as a, a slight aside on that, it, think about the California fires. What has happened is the 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 absurd uh, ver- zoning regulations that California cities have have adopted have forced poor people more or less to move farther and further the city into fire zones, basically. Right. 
And so the poor people are the ones who are losing their trailers in the forest, not rich people losing their stone mansions. Um, You're talking about uh, zoning and uh, regulation. And uh, one of the things that Ron and I already talked about is the effect of COVID on on really um, shining a light on so many horrific inefficiencies mm-hmm. in, in the American um, economic system. Um, being from Europe, don't take it as a criticism. Uh, you, are, you, are, you are much further. You're an American now. I'm an American now. Um, uh, obviously, things are much, uh, much worse in many parts of the world. But the fact that um, a nurse from um, Maryland cannot practice in uh, New Jersey, um, right. the fact that we have to wait for months for our own health authorities to approve something that the Europeans can be using and vice versa, that the Europeans are spending months uh, evaluating the safety of something that is being used safely in the United States. I mean, this is just ridiculous. And uh, um, we, we hopefully will we'll address that, but I don't have very high hopes, to be honest. But isn't there a metaphor in there about globalization generally, right? Is that one of the reasons why you got the great enrichment is that you could have the the modeling effect where right. people could say that's how they did it, so we should do that too, and you kind of leapfrog sometimes generations of trial and error, and we're not allowing people to take that lesson to heart, which is that if New Jersey's run through all of the licensing things that it needs to to assure a nurse is safe, you shouldn't worry that the or if vice versa, if one from Maryland. If they have a license that's worked, it should be portable across state lines, right? I mean, it's well, it certainly international sh- lines and, yeah. and international lines. I, I, you know, this is obviously a debate for, uh, or rather, a topic for for next debate. However, what I did find in my research over the last twenty years or so is that countries do will do just about anything but to learn from uh, uh, mistakes and also from successes of their neighbors. Mm-hmm. How does it make any sense? that Botswana, which for the last 40 years has grown at a pace 10 times the world average and has become from a very dirt poor country, a a country which is now upper middle income, how is it that no other African country has really taken the Botswanan example to to uh, to heart? Mm-hmm. Uh, on the contrary, the people in Zimbabwe are going in the opposite direction. Why is it that we are incapable of learning from the Swedish uh, high school for profit uh, education model mm-hmm. and bring it to the United States? Uh, why is it the Europeans are refusing to uh, adopt American uh, GMO? Um, uh, approach to GMOs, mm-hmm. uh, I, I think that um, it's actually much more difficult for nations to learn from each other than than it ought to be. I, I think that that's probably true for the last half of the 20th century and the 21st century. In the, in the good old days, you could steal the technology as we did from England and build your own damn cotton mills. <laughs> but I, I think you're, you're right. The problem now is... is or you that, could pay for it properly through patents the way the Venetians did with like blown glass and whatnot. <laughs> we, I'm not going into patent policy at this point, but I will just say this. Copyright shouldn't be no more than 15 years. All right, that being said. <laughs> All right, uh, very quickly on these last two so we can get into... Um, the Enlightenment. Rank thumbsuckery. Um, uh, democracy is on the march. Um, I'm... I'm more skeptical on this one than, than I mean, I understand where the data shows, but I make a case about how 
we're becoming a more democratic world, and that's that's a wonderful thing. I, I, I guess it's my uh, I have to do it because I I actually wrote that chapter. So look, <laughs> in uh, 1989, when I agree with it though. Don't worry, <laughs> I'm not throwing you under the bus. In 1989, 1990, when communism collapsed, about half of humanity lived uh, under uh, some form of authoritarianship, and only about a half of humanity lived under some form of representative government. Now, two thirds of humanity live under some form of representative government, and only one third lives in what we would call a dictatorship. So there has been tremendous improvement. Um, For every country which uh, descends into authoritarianship, you can come up with an example of a country where uh, things are looking up. Nigeria had a handover of uh, government uh, from from government to the opposition and back again, um, which, you know, in itself qualifies as a massive success. And also in the long run, I just don't think that in a world where information is pretty much free, um, and and very difficult to very difficult to uh, prohibit people from access to information. I just don't think that um, it is imaginable that people will be satisfied with not having any dignity and suffering in virtual uh, serfdom whilst knowing and being able to watch on television or on the internet that things are completely different in other parts of the world. That, you know, if you are a Middle East and you're a woman and you don't have your basic rights, you can see on the internet that things are much better in London and in New York. If you are a, uh, a peasant without any political rights in Zimbabwe, you know that, um, uh, you know, politicians are your servants in Britain, in France, and many other countries, or at least they are supposed to be. <laughs> so my <laughs> so my point is Not that uh, I'm, I'm bullish on democracy. I wouldn't be at all surprised if, uh, if 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 a year from now Belarusia is is democratic and five to ten years uh, uh, Russia is uh-huh. okay, so I'm with you on the long term mm-hmm. bullishness, um, but you know these are global trends we're talking about. I, I, I understand <laughs> that, um, but I'm uh, you know, and part of this is just me arguing my my book. But um, oh, so it was a, basically a recommendation. No, no, I've, I've soured on um, teleology, right? I mean, I, I just uh, like, I, I think that um, uh, you know, when Ron and I have had this conversation over the years, there used to be, there were times in, in, in Western culture where it was just seen as obvious that advanced technology was on the side of tyrants. You know, 1984, the police state, uh, the Nazi regime, you know, communism, all uh, that that you know the panopticon was always going to be on the side of the the boot stomping on a human face and then all of a sudden the zeitgeist completely flipped and we're like oh my gosh no it's the apple ad where they're smashing big brother and it's lifting people up and all that and my argument is is that i agree with you long term the trend lines go one way will go the right way but not to make a julian simonish point but if you focus in on a medium-term slice of the trend line, the lines can can dip yes. pretty badly. Yes. And um, it is not obvious to me that, say, technology is on the side of freedom right now mm-hmm. in China, right? Right, And it's really, it seems to be on the side of well, evil. Yeah, I, I agree with your point, actually. And if people, and I get asked frequently, well, Ron, you know, you have a book with all these nice positive trends. What do you worry about most? And the thing uh, that I worry about most is the advent of a social credit surveillance state like China has, basically mm-hmm. pervasive facial recognition everywhere all the time. 
You have your ID card with you that is the only thing that lets you access anything, rent, uh, your newspaper, whatever you want, and the government keeps track of you at all points. And my, my concern is that, that, that we're not working that way in the United States just yet, but we've created, if you will, a, a private uh, surveillance society here in the United States with vast amounts of information on all of us. And I'm afraid there might be a 9-11 moment where we would give up our freedom again and the government will go into all these private companies, Facebook, Google, and so forth, give us all your data and we'll never get it back. You know, in a situation, in a dystopian situation like that, one thing that would come in hugely handy is ExpressVPN. When you use the bathroom, you always close the door behind you, right? You don't want random passers-by looking in on you. So why would you let people look in on you when you go online? Using the internet without ExpressVPN is like going to the bathroom and not closing the door. I could have a lot of fun with this extended metaphor or analogy, but I'm not going to do that. Did you know that your internet service provider like Comcast or Verizon knows every single website you visit? And what's worse is they can sell this information to ad companies and tech giants who will use your data to target you. And if Ronald Bailey is right, one day the government could take that data that these companies collected on you and use it for their own nefarious ends. ExpressVPN puts a stop to this. It creates a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the Internet so that your online activity can't be seen by anyone including one day, perhaps, the Leviathan State. You can use ExpressVPN on all of your devices. It works on everything, phones, laptops, even routers, so everyone who shares your Wi-Fi can still be protected even if they don't have ExpressVPN. And the best part is, using ExpressVPN is as easy as closing the bathroom door. You just fire up the app, click one button, and you're protected. ExpressVPN is the world's number one rated VPN by CNET, Wired, The Verge, and countless others. So, if you're like me and you believe that your online activity is your business, secure yourself by visiting expressvpn.com slash remnant, not dingo, remnant today. Use this exclusive link, expressvpn.com slash remnant. R-E-M-N-A-N-T. And you can get an extra three months free. That's expressvpn.com slash remnant. We thank ExpressVPN for their colorful analogies and for sponsoring today's episode of uh, Remnant. So, all right, uh, we got got, uh, the long piece. We'll all agree on that one. Safer world. I'll circle back with some questions about that. But let's move on to, in the time we have left, you know, since we we started this with with the rising democracy thing, um, the argument that we have right now on the right, in particular, because I don't particularly care about the left's arguments right this moment. I, it, you know, I'm there's 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 a fire across town and there's a fire in my house, so I'm more concerned about the fire in my house. Is just join the libertarians? Yeah, with. yeah. So a- anti-globalism, right? We know all that. Nationalism, we know all that, and um, and one of their key points is the nationalist key points is that it is just 
on its fa- it was on its face now in retrospect a mistake to invite China into the community of nations, the global market, all the WTO, however granular you want to get on it. And I'm open to some of that argument, right? Because it has not gone as we planned or as we mm-hmm. hoped. Um, but what my objection is to people who make those arguments is they never say yet, right? They never say, we thought China was going to become a democracy. We thought China was going to become a liberal democratic nation, yada, yada, yada. And it just hasn't happened. And then they put a period at the end of the statement rather than a comma and the word yet, because mm-hmm. we don't know, well, you know, it, it, to me, you're talking about how Belarusia yep. and whatever could, Russia could become democratic in 10 years. It is still not obvious to me that the Communist Party of China is going to have a stranglehold over China for the next 20 years, 10 years, 100 years, or anything like that. Um, But at the same time, it doesn't help that, I mean, just as I was against teleology, the whole, the suicide and suicide of the West is this, all it takes is for people to stop caring about the things that release the miracle, the great enrichment, whatever you want to call it, to turn that off. And there, that is a remarkably intellectually popular thing now in the United States, on the right, um, in big chunks of Europe, and all and, and, and all over the place. And isn't that the, the biggest threat to these trend lines that we've got going, is that people just say, eh, that's not what we wanted. You made the point that people don't, countries don't want to learn from other countries. Yeah even though it's objectively idiotic for them not to, uh, it seems to me that there's a there's a riot of idiocy throughout Western <laughs> civilization right now. Um, so two points. I mean, first, uh, obviously, uh, we were talking about uh, democratization, you know, the Fukuyama concept mm-hmm. and uh, end of history and so forth. And I'm much more in the Fukuyama camp than than many people are even now. As am I, 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 I am. Um, and and uh, I think that uh, even uh, even with what we are seeing in China and the rise of the surveillance state, human beings do want dignity um, and they do want to be treated um um, well, they want to be treated in a dignified manner, whether they are living in Zimbabwe, I've lived amongst those people or in South Africa or or in Europe or anywhere else. And so it is that which gives me, um, which which makes me optimistic about, about the future. It is that everybody knows that there are places in the world where people are treated in a dignified manner and they will want to do that. The The second point that you were making is um, is much closer to my heart. And that is that as far as I can tell, we have stopped teaching history. We have stopped teaching uh, what brought about the great enrichment. We have stopped teaching the basic tenets of what used to be called Western civilization. Now that's pejorative, so let's just call it liberal civilization. Mm -hmm. What are the basic aspects of liberal civilization? Well, let's see. First of all, it's freedom of speech. If you don't have freedom of speech, the entire society could be heading off the cliff and you won't be able to tell because you are not allowed to speak. Um, how about individual innocence and individual guilt as opposed to group innocence right. and, and, uh, and group guilt? How about uh, the fact that uh, in, in a liberal uh, system, we don't believe in intergenerational guilt? We don't believe in, um, uh, you know, somehow the, the blood guilt of the Jews or for that matter, the uh, eternal damnation of descendants of the slaveholders and things like that. And it seems to me that these basic features of, of 
what we used to consider the basis of our political system are no longer being taught. And if they are being taught, they are being dismissed as somehow vestiges of of past oppression that have nothing to tell us, uh, which is, of course, why I'm driven crazy when people tell me, well, you you know, what's the point of reading Aristotle or what's the point of le- reading Cicero or what's the point of reading uh, Jefferson because they are all dead white males? And I say, well, I mean, irrespective, they have interesting things to say. So in that sense, I'm very close to what you are saying. The... Uh... The schema that I, I that I steal shamelessly is from Jonathan Rauch from Kindly Inquisitors, that the Enlightenment rests on three different uh, legs of a stool, and uh, if we can maintain those, then we're good to go. And those legs are what he calls democracy, how we decide who gets to exercise legitimate power, uh, capitalism, how we decide who gets what, and then the final one, back to Marion's point, is free speech or what he calls liberal science, which is the ability to criticize everybody. Everybody gets criticized by everybody else, and no one is ever told to shut up. And the, the big insight from that, and the, the main enlightenment insight from that is tolerance, which is basically, I'm, I, I may not know what the absolute truth is, the ultimate truth, the transcendental truth is, but I'm damn sure you don't either. So leave me alone. And I think that if you have those three institutions, broadly speaking, still working together, then the great enrichment, the end of poverty, all of the things that we're projecting will absolutely come true in this century. Yeah. So I recently wrote a column about this that got some surprising traction. And would you um, please get your people on your side of the right, right hand <laughs> side of the aisle to do something about this? I, I am doing all I can, Don. Um, <laughs> So, like, I made this point, and I, I, listeners have heard me talk about it, so I won't belabor it, but um, it's all my life, all your lives, basically, when we talk about centrists or moderates or, you know, independents, whatever, basically this was a exercise in ideological difference splitting between left, ideological right and ideological left, and I had all sorts of contempt for a lot of that, and we don't need to get into the weeds on it, but it occurs, it occurs to me, and particularly in the last three years, but going back a little further, in fact, um, for want of a better term, uh, you could describe a different kind of centrist, which is um, the analogy I use is that right now in our partisan climate, Trump is like a magnet next to a compass, right? So he's the true North now. And if you're on one side of the partisan divide, he's the false North, (laughs) just by illustration. Right. And so if, if, if he's, if you're on that team, he defines all of your positions one way or the other. And if you're on the other team, you're on the south point of the compass, and he also defines all of your positions. And there is a tendency, I mean, the, I think it was Scott Gottlieb made this point recently, that you know there were other mistakes made by government other than the ones made by Donald Trump. Yeah, yeah. And the CDC's mistakes didn't get any reporting because you couldn't find a way to, I know, other than you, Ron, he's <laughs> waving his hand, uh, you couldn't connect it into an easy anti-Trump narrative right and the and so in that climate this sort of tribal climate uh if you're someone of the ideological left of center or the ideological right of center who is not interested in constantly catastrophizing our politics talking about how we're one election away from apocalypse and and flight 93 bull that michael anton has inflicted upon the world um if you reject that stuff and say actually no i can I can disagree with somebody 
from Brookings, you know, or wherever and have a conversation about various things without demonizing them, without turning them into the existential other, that kind of makes you a centrist. And another way to put it then, so that puts, you know, we're on east and west, we're on either sides of these ant antipodes, but we're, or antipodes or whatever you pronounce it, but um, there's a basic sort of consensus about what I often call the right to be wrong, which is the essence of a, a liberal democratic system, is that you don't adjudicate all differences at the point of a sword. You're allowed to have disagreements so long as you observe basic rules. And the, another way to think about it, you know, it's like classical liberals are now weirdly considered centrists and moderates now. And it's well, a, we are. But it, <laughs> only, only because of the, how crazy the system was. I mean, I remember them saying that, you know, Paul Ryan, one of the old ladies off cliffs. I mean, there used to be um, well, that uh, was said by our enemies, not by yeah. our friends. So, um, but another way to think about it is just, it's, it's the people who aren't taking crazy pills and, um, be libertarians, we can have that argument another time. <laughs> uh, um, but the, 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 so before you were saying, and I agree with you about the way you're expressing it about, you know, this basically what I call the right to be wrong. You can disagree. We don't have access to epistemological metaphysical truth. At the same time, it is very difficult to defend the principles that we all basically agree on without grounding it in something more than pure reason. And um, uh, it's very difficult to get people to march in an army for pure reason. I mean, the, the Jacobins managed it for a little while, um, and that wasn't, pretty, well, that wasn't particularly reasonable. Well, they said they were reasonable, that... Anyway. Yes. Well, it's sort of like my favorite, one of my favorite bits from the TV show Parks and Rec is there's this evil, actually they're very sweet old men, but there's this cult that worship a, a lava breathing demon named Zorp. And it's a doomsday cult and they keep getting disappointed because doomsday never arrives. So they have to reserve a park for another date to have their party. And, but the name of the cult is the reasonableists because they wanted to claim that anybody who criticized them was being unreasonable. But anyway, uh, yeah. be that as it may, one of the... I, could I... Yeah. I, I understand your analysis, and I, I, and I think that the, the, the cardinal virtue of the Enlightenment, again, is reiterated is tolerance. And someone that, might, that everybody might benefit from reading is actually Rawls' other book mm -hmm. on liberal politics, because he sketches out why, if you will, reason may, might work. No, it's not Rawls. Oh, I'm screwing that up. Ah, damn. All right, well, it'll come back to you. Anyway, but, uh, let me just ask you. So you said that, um, um, uh, Jonah, you said that it's not enough to rely on reason in order to make people appreciative of the values of the Enlightenment. So what else would you appeal to? Uh, I mean, I when, 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 when I write for Human Progress on my website, I don't, really appeal to reason, I appeal to historical evidence. Mm -hmm. In other words, I make the argument that you made in, in your book, Suicide mm -hmm. of the West, which is, look, if you like um, good health and, and full shops and so on and so forth, enlightenment values are, are the way to go. So I make the historical argument. Some people make the reason mm -hmm. argument. What, what, what's missing? Do you well, so, I, so here's the problem. And, and I think we agree on vast swaths of this stuff, but when you're talking about the war against history, right? What, yeah. what it also is, is a war against culture. And the, and I, I'll get to my enlightenment nuances in a second, but the, 
the founding fathers were inheritors of a very British culture, right? right? And that British culture, or Eng- I should really say English culture, did not develop its love of liberty and its its really um, fortuitous and accidental political institutions out of some deductive reasoning from mm-hmm. first principles. Mm-hmm. It's because the Brits were just weird, right? And they had just a uh, sui generis situation where, uh, you know, it's, it's very much a sort of Whig history kind of thing, but, you know, they had no... Uh, no standing armies because they were an island, so they didn't need. A, and without standing armies, the monarch doesn't be, can't become absolute. So it has to, in a sort of Douglas North kind of way, negotiate with other competing institutions, which expands the the sphere of of discourse and makes politics more transactional, which is good. Um, all sorts of other quirky things about like um, you know the Fourth Amendment basically gets its start as uh, no uh, every man's home is his castle. There's this, this is just sort of weird thing that the sovereign's not allowed to come into my house because my house is mine, right? And that was, there's also this argument that, uh, you know, it was the uh, termination of the banning of basically cousin marriage that created more atomized nuclear families, which they're all, anyway, my only point is that there are these contingent things that get wrapped up in specifically English culture with some help from Holland and um, this bourgeois dignity argument that, that Deirdre makes which I agree with, but 95% of, um, the what it leaves out is that this was a culture. It's a cultural norm that, you know, the original working title of my book was going to be The Tribe of Liberty. And when you, when you take out the sort of cultural norms, when you declare a war on the past and you say, okay, we're just going to behave, agree to these rules that are fairly sterile, that don't speak to me as a American. They don't arouse patriotic love or any of that kind of stuff. But there's sort of uh, distilled cosmopolitanism of the best sort. Uh, it calls to mind Chesterton's stuff about how, you know, the purely rational soldier will not fight. The purely rational man will not marry. Mm-hmm. People need to feel a cultural attachment to these norms in ways that, and I blame mostly the left. Uh, has has been attacking for a very long time, and now it's become a bipartisan problem. Yeah. So part of the reason why I don't um, advocate for human progress from 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 reason point mm-hmm. of view, but from history point of view, is because precisely of what you're saying. It seems to me that that culture was imported into America under the heading of the founding myth of the United States and what it uh, what it represented. Right. Um, and obviously, it's uh, very difficult to. Um, be optimistic about this founding myth uh, persisting into the future uh, when it is under a frontal attack uh, from uh, from well every side. I mean, you there was a recent survey that yeah. said that high school kids now, majority of them or plurality of them, see the founding fathers as villains. I mean, yeah, and then it's a very difficult thing to cling on to the good stuff of the founding when the whole argument is now that they're villains, right? Yep. So um, that that's something that I'm concerned about. I mean, in a country where you do not have uh, ethnic homogeneity or a cultural homogeneity, uh, what do you have holding us together? And it is, or at least it used to be, a uh, a founding myth of a republic arising to to promote and perpetuate freedom. And you know, and I'm just be clear, I agree with you. It's a founding myth. 
but not a myth in the pejorative sense. No, right. It's no, a, no, no. It's an organizing principle. It's the story of the American experiment, and, and yes, all that. yes. If that didn't, if that yeah, wasn't, that's clear why enough. I wanted to clarify because yes, I didn't think absolutely. that's what you meant. Yeah. Uh, let me jump in the well hole of despair that you all have <laughs> up here. And uh, I, I would point out that Hayek, of course, in uh, both the Constitution of Liberty and most particularly in the Fatal Conceit, pointed out that tribalism, collectivist tribalism, is in our nature. It right. is the family writ large. We want everybody to be treated like old Uncle Joe, who's a little bit peculiar and blah, blah, blah. And the problem with that, and the case he made constantly, one after another, is if you try to impose the institutions of the family on the larger society, you destroy society. Right. And vice versa. Correct. Correct. And and that's correct. You don't treat families as contractual units either. Right. You Just like you, you know, it's not like Reese's peanut butter cups where you get chocolate and the peanut butter and it's great. If you get your gamine shaft and my gazelle shaft, it ruins it. Right. So. Basically. Exactly. But he, but also to your point earlier, uh, he was a great historian of looking about how these unintended institutions came together to create the world of liberty that we've been enjoying the last two centuries or so. But uh, to the despairing point, he said, you will never defeat uh, tribalistic collectivism. You just can't because it's in our nature and every generation has to bring the battle back to, to liberty. So I hope that's what we're doing. The, yeah. the, the reason why Hayek is such a fascinating uh, person is because part of the reason is that he's so nuanced. So his, nuanced. his yeah. point about culture is that we don't want to protect culture in amber. Mm -hmm. but he accuses conservatives of doing that. That's right. But mostly European uh, conservatives. Exactly. We can have that argument. Uh, what he's saying is that of course, cultures change, but they have to change gradually and carefully. My problem with the left, I don't consider myself right. I, I call myself non-left, mm -hmm. not left. My problem with the left is that it seems to me that anything that's older than five years is the enemy. Right. That you should take a baseball bat to just about everything that hasn't been produced before the Obama administration. And that's insane because these... Um, uh, norms and institutions that we have, imperfect as though they are, are there for a reason. They have evolved in a certain right. way for a reason. Yeah, I mean, University of Edinburgh just uh, yes. got rid of the David Hume building because, oh, yes. uh, you know, yeah. can't have that. The, the other thing that I think about the way this is, human beings only learn from failure, and that's unfortunately the case. We, we, we're terrible at foresight. We cannot foresee things. The The if you will, left-wing conceit is they think they can f foresee what the, what their prop, uh, what their programs are going to result in, and that, and in fact, what we're going to do is learn how they fail and going to hurt a lot of people along the way. Yeah. So my my theory, of, and I, again, I don't want to reprise all of my stuff, but like, oh, go ahead. No, it, it's it, your it, podcast. The 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 war on the past is in part a power play, right? Is oh yeah. If you cut off access to this vast storehouse mm -hmm. of case studies, of just evidence. Absolutely. And you say it no longer is accessible to you. Is uh, the, the analogy I use is, is um, like in the movie in Goldfinger, where Goldfinger, the villain, he doesn't want to rob Fort Knox. He wants to irradiate all the gold in Fort Knox so that his existing stockpile becomes vastly more valuable. Um, if you basically say the only narrative about the past is the one I control, and you don't have access to any competing theories about the past then you're basically saying you're trying to monopolize power in the narrative about the future. And it's a power play. And I think it's profoundly dangerous. Um, I do want to, I feel like I'm being unfair to you about the book. So we'll come back to that in two seconds, but I want to just get my enlightenment thing in. I gather you're a big Steven Pinker fan. 
Oh, absolutely. Yes, and and look, I and he blurbed us. I know he did. I know he did. I mean, this is this is basically the the Mount Rushmore of human progress of the blurbs back here. Although my dyslexia, when I saw uh, Johann Norberg, I jumbled it because I thought it was said Jonah. I was like, I don't remember blurbing this. But anyway, um, my I got you drunk. I'm a, uh, you've got me drunk many, <laughs> many, many times. Um, the I like. I mean, I'm a, I'm a fan of I'm a fan of Pinker's as well, and I think he's basically on the side of the angels. His book on violence I thought was great. I think he's unfair later in later work against Burke. Um, and my problem with the Enlightenment Now argument is he basically says he basically does the reverse of what a lot of people on the left these days are doing now. Is he says everything that was good. That's the Enlightenment. Everything that is bad, that's not the Enlightenment. And the 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 it seems to me the fact of the matter is, and we, you can you can respect my right to be wrong here though, is um, there are a lot of Enlightenments. That the the French and German Enlightenments were very different than the English those and Scottish. Were, those were the bad Enlightenments. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, it turns out that that they that weren't enlightening. Mike Myers was right, and so I married an axe murderer when he said, it, "If when it comes to Enlightenments, if it's not Scottish, it's crap," um, <laughs> which is a bit of a paraphrase. But uh, uh, um, and I think that this is one of the things that leads to a lot of confusion because a lot of the worst things that have happened to humanity in the last three hundred years. Nazism, communism. Um, well, that's the atavistic collectivism. Yeah, come out of the romantic strain right. and the national... I mean, nationalism comes out of the Enlightenment every bit as much as democracy does. And when we just do this blanket Enlightenment good stuff, I think it gives short shrift to the cultural argument that I was trying to make, which is that some of these cultural norms were more important than the you know, the, the, the purely reasoned, whether it's Kantian or Cartesian arguments, because they were actually felt inside people's hearts and guided them, you know, the English at the end of the, I mean, there's this great line in, in Orwell where he's talking about how, um, you know, if there are any, um, if there are any Gandhis in Nazi Germany or the Soviet Union, we have no idea who they are because they and their families have been dragged off and murdered in the middle of the night. Say what you will about the Brits, and the British Empire had lots of flaws. There was something about British culture that was open to moral suasion when faced with a persistent movement. And I'm not to say that it was an overnight thing and that, or any of that kind of thing, but the Soviets were not, would never have been persuaded by nonviolence. Right? The Nazis, pretty much by definition, would never have been persuaded by by nonviolence. There was something about English culture that was persuadable about nonviolence in ways, or in American culture with the civil rights movement. And the arguments about tolerance and, and, and all that, which I agree with entirely, they're hugely important, but it seems to me that they're second order in terms of their political importance from actually getting people to be basically proud about the fact that we're a pretty decent people in a decent country. And there endeth my, my lecture. Um, so I agree. We're decent people. And decent <laughs> um, just on the record, I just want you to. I'm agreeing. And well, I mean, it gets to this problem. The nationalists have de- co-opted this definition of nationalism that is pretty, particularly asinine when it's even written out, and um, and it's basically kind of Nietzschean. You know, it's just an assertion of power. Yeah, right. Um, so, I mean, but, what, what do you think about common good conservatism? What now that we're thinking about 
sins of conservatism? I think it is as, and I was very critical of compassionate conservatism as well. Um, I think it is another chapter in that story. It does, and much like with compassionate conservatism, I am entirely open to some of the subordinate policy ideas that get wrapped That's up fine. in all that. But as a conceptual matter, I don't like it. No. No. It's basically an assertion of power again. Our side, we know what virtue is, and we're now going to oppose virtue. No, I, because I it's for your own good, really. Well, no, that drove me crazy about George W. Bush was, you know, he used to go around saying, I'm a different kind of conservative. I'm a compassionate conservative. Screw you. You know, what are you trying to say? You know, if I don't agree with you, I'm not a compassionate person. Um, okay, so in terms of and, and and in terms of brutal grilling, this this is basically Bambi versus Godzilla. But um uh what would you say to people about the to the claim or the the, the response to the book is that in much the way that creationists look for God in the gaps? Sure you're looking for progress in the gaps and that we really do have enormous number of problems and um, focusing on this stuff on the positive side will breed complacence <laughs> and, and apathy towards the, the pressing issues that we have to deal with today. The, the summary is if you don't actually know the state of the world, you can't fix the problems that still exist. And that's what the book is for. The truth of the matter is, as I've started at the beginning is, Every smart person already knows what the problems are. They read the newspapers, they watch television, they listen to their wonderful podcasts and, and all that, and they know what the problems are. What we are trying to do is give people greater context for to situate those, those problems. And we're not cherry-picking. We, we acknowledge there are negative trends in the world, and we begin with that in, in the beginning of the book. But we're saying, fine, we agree. Look at these other things that you probably don't know about, and then that will give you a better way of handling what you think are the problems of the world. Two points on this. One is I don't see why it is necessarily uh, the result of knowing positive trends that it may turn you complacent as opposed to yeah. optimistic about the possibilities um, of, of human mind to, to address problems. Uh, once you've realized that it took us three and a half thousand years to come up with a solution to smallpox, mm -hmm. Um, and then you compare it to our search for COVID vaccine, uh, which it seems like we are going to have it in under a year, then that's optimism or, or that should fill you with optimism rather than complacency. So uh, uh, th that's uh, point number one. Um, uh, point number two, uh, Ron, once again, I've lost. Oh, my fault. Yeah, no, 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 no you, you were, you were, uh, the, what was the second part of your, uh, you know, if you guys came here sober, it would be go <laughs> much better. <laughs> hey, well, hey, I got the KOEL out the door here. But. Oh, uh, and, oh, and, uh, yes, um, uh, looking for positive news amongst gaps. Look, um, for ever since written history started, we knew what horrible life consisted of, and it consisted of basically the four horsemen of the apocalypse that every civilization talks about. Right. Pestilence, war, famine, and... Uh, <laughs> war, pestilence. Uh, and disease. No, it's pestilence. That's, and, yeah. and war is constant. Um, well, the four horsemen of anyway, the apocalypse. Death, you know, and death, death. And death. And death. Plain old everyday death. Exactly. So you see, they, they become so rare that we haven't even, even uh, remembered the fourth. But uh, aside from death, um, which is still with us. Um, Though much delayed. 
though much delayed. Um, people are, on average, well-fed. Uh, violence, at least international conflicts, meaning one country declaring war on another and going to war, that's pretty much disappeared. That's at zero. Um, and pestilence... In, in, interpersonal, interpersonal violence is also down. Interpersonal mm-hmm. violence. At so. the time of Michelangelo, 73 out of 100,000 Italians could expect to be murdered in their lives. Today, it's 0.9 out of 100,000. That's a good stat. That's a good stat. That's a good stat. (laughs) Um, And, and of course, pestilence or disease, you know, know, we have it, but uh, it's, it's, at least we know what the problem is. I mean, we knew about uh, you know, this outbreak of pneumonia in China within days. We had the pathogen um, genetically analyzed within days, then the news spread, and we could all start working on how to solve the problem. I mean, for thousands of years, people didn't even know what they were dying of. So once again, you see, um, as, as Ron and I discussed many times, there is this problem, is that as, as problems become um, less uh, numerous and as problems disappear and as they are resolved, human brain uh, broadens the definition of of uh, of bad of problems and and we come up with new problems which seem just as pressing, but in fact they are not. I mean, it is an objective fact that the United States has made much progress since the Jim Crow era. Right. Um, uh, you know, just because some people have decided to redefine uh, racism today. Um, and to make it to, to make it the alpha and omega of all political conversation doesn't mean that the country is still stuck in in you know in the antebellum south. Right. Which is not to say there aren't problems that need to be addressed with regard to racial uh, issues in the United right. States. Right. But those problems are different than slavery, different. lynching, oh, and that sort of thing. Yeah. Absolutely. But back to your point here, we have a nice quote from Hans Rosling from uh, Factfulness, a fabulous book almost as good as ours. No, it's really good. (laughs) And I think this speaks to your point. I see all this progress, and it fills me with conviction and hope that further progress is possible. This is not optimistic. It is having a clear and reasonable idea about how things are. It is having a worldview that is constructive and useful. And I think that's what we're trying to do with this book. Yeah, no, I I actually agree with you. I'm just asking the question because the question's got to be asked. And, um, but this is one of the reasons why we got the politics that we have right now is a huge number of conservatives convinced themselves that conservatives have lost every single battle that they've had for the last 40 years. And that narrative was just wrong. I mean, it was just wrong on almost every, I mean, not on every level, obviously there, there have been defeats, but, uh, the idea that the conservative movement, you know, never conserved anything, um, it's, you know, back when we cared about free speech, free speech is now more enshrined in American life than it ever was. Now, just conservatives decided they don't like it anymore. At least a lot of them have. Uh, we, you know, gun rights are more secure than they've been in, you know, in a century or more. Uh, you can go down a very long list. Civil, about, civil rights for most Americans. Right. But I'm just talking expanded. about the, the people who claim that that you needed... Are you saying conservatives don't care about civil rights? I think they do. <laughs> uh, but anyway, I, I, my only point is, is that if, if, you, if you think that this, the, the current regime only fails, you're going to have less confidence in sticking with stuff that's actually working. And, and that's where I, I agree with you. Um, what are we going to do about the oceans? 
What about the oceans? I care about the oceans. How well, get the plastic? I care about the them? oceans. Well, first of all, we have to make sure that countries get rich enough so they don't keep chucking their plastic in the ocean. Uh, it's just one thing, and we acknowledge that again. Is you know, plastic pollution in the ocean is a big, big problem, uh, and so we need to make sure that people will take care of their garbage. And we, and it's like any other threshold is people need to get wealthy enough to really care about putting their garbage in little recycling containers and have it hauled away at expense. And so that problem will solve itself, I would argue, over time. Um, but if you're talking about what? That we're overfishing the oceans? Overfishing, uh, sa- uh, uh, acidification of the oceans? Right. Be- before we get onto that, just one stat. Uh, 90% of all plastic pollution in the ocean comes from eight rivers. All of them are in Africa or Asia. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, over to you on acidification no, and, and, and overfishing. True. But no, the on um, overfishing, uh, I will make this statement, I always make it, is that anything that anybody out there thinks is an environmental problem, that problem is occurring in an open access commons. Mm-hmm. It is unowned and usually un- ungoverned in some sense or other. So if you don't want the trees to cut down and you think about it, th- this is a sad statistic, something like 70% of the world's forests are owned by governments. Mm-hmm. That should scare you because they won't take care of them, especially if it's a poor country. Uh, they will if they get rich, right? No, that's correct. Is it, they, they, and another trend we can point to is that when people uh, per, per capita incomes get to around, I don't know, six $7,000, then forests stop declining in that country and they start coming back. It's, that number, like what, Kuznets Curve? Kuznets Curve. Yeah, Kuznets, the Environmental yeah. Kuznets Curve. Yeah. 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 And there are just, a lot of things like that. We there have, are a whole bunch of things once you get to yeah. that number, all of a sudden good things start turning on, right? Um, Air pollution. uh, um, Even uh, water pollution. Water pollution. uh, um, The reforestation, that's something. If if the reforestation, since you brought up reforestation, has been occurring, um, uh, and I agree with you that reforestation is a good thing in all sorts of ways, uh, how come we are still seeing such large, at least reported, um, die-offs of various species? If the habitat's increasing, what, what, and, and particularly, what's going on with bugs? I keep I keep reading that insects are dying off. Well, a new report just out in Science in August basically looked at. It turns out that our government has been counting bugs for the last few decades, and it turns out they can find no trends in bugs in the United States. Really? No. That's interesting. Not overall trends. I mean, some are fewer, some, but in general, there is no great die-off of bugs in the United States. And if it's not happening here, it's probably not happening in Europe. There's something fishy about the data over there. Uh-huh. And, uh, so, and, so. and what, 75% of all life on Earth is bugs? Something like that, yeah. yeah. More than that, probably. So if, if there are no trends among the 75%, then if there are trends, then... Well, no, but there, are, but there are trends. The, 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 the big, you know, what happened for species is the big tasty things all got eaten by our ancestors. Mm-hmm. That's why we have no mammoths, mastodons. We're going to change uh, well, that, though, right? Well, I hope so. I yeah. hope with uh, modern technology and George Church uh, mm-hmm. that his uh, mammoth project comes through and we'll have mammoths again. But... Um, Back to the oceans, what what you need to do and what we, you know, and Cato, I've actually written on this. I did a documentary on this at one point, is, is that what you need to do is to have the fishermen own the fish. And in places where they do that, like New Zealand and Iceland, the fisheries are stable or growing. Mm-hmm. And so we need to do more of that around the world. And one trend that uh, uh, Ron did write about was uh, aquaculture, right? Which is really so cool. Yeah, uh, you know that you can you can 
tasty fish. Now even sturgeon is being grown in the United States for caviar mm. and uh, uh, obviously salmon and many other fish. If you can... Now, the tastiest fish, it turns out, are uh, carnivorous. Right. Um, but it may be possible to switch the, uh, the, the, the taste buds genetically of carnivorous fish to being herbivorous. Uh, I can't pronounce that word. Eating, eating plants. But then their protein intake, and, intake would be different, right? Um, well, you could, uh, you, could, you could feed them tofu. And uh, you would still get a fish just as good. So, interns. so or interns, yeah, yeah. Or interns. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, I, I, so I did this big uh, Snake River rafting trip this summer, and I got a really fascinating sort of indoctrination into the problems with dams. Yeah, and I don't like. I now I'm officially. Should point, an, should, I should point out all those are government dams. I agree. I agree. I'm I'm, I'm increasingly anti dams. Um, I am not quite persuaded which what the one of the river guides on our last day i kid you not read a poem for eco-terrorism okay. in which she talked about blowing up the Glen canyon dam yeah. um with ten thousand pounds of tnt and i was like ah, like i'm i'm persuaded on the damn thing but let just i'll come up a little shy of that um but it, it, it goes to me that like if we could actually come up with cold fusion with a, a clean renewable energy source, why don't we just use plain old modern fission? I, I'm I'm fine with fission too. But I mean, it, it, this is the part of the part the, the luddite nature of environmentalism, which says that we got to rely on modes of energy production that actually Maybe. don't f satisfy the needs of a modern. No, what they want us to rely on are fuel sources that our ancestors. Uh, relied on sunlight and wind. Yeah, no, yeah, they want to go, I mean, there's like, if I were a whale, I'd be like nervous. They're coming from my blubber again. Because, I mean, like windmills are an old technology, you yeah. know? All right. Um, what is the one, uh, last question? You said, you know, before, I mean, Marianne was about to say, yeah, I wrote that chapter. Harvard, I'm giving it to Marianne. So, no, no, no. What, what was the one thing, was there one thing that you guys disagreed on and had to really hash out? There was one. Did I, did I mention it? Go ahead. Capital punishment. Ah, who? I, 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 I. No, I think that was, we need to just illustrate the trend, yes, just yes. whether or not, anyway. Uh, whether we should include it or not. Because um, I, I think, I, I totally get Ron's point is that. Uh, um, Be careful how you characterize it. Some, <laughs> some people commit such horrible crimes that, um, you know. Uh -huh. Death penalty seems appropriate, but ultimately we included it because, in in a sense, that um, it is a book about the world getting gentler and nicer, uh -huh. and the fact that even for the for the most horrible people, we still um, give them the give ability them of mercy. redemption, and um, and we don't electrocute them, but we keep them in prison. Uh, is is uh, I, I I thought that. It, I thought that the founders of the Scottish Enlightenment would have been proud. All right. And on that, I think they would also be proud of this book and of you guys. And it is called 10 Global Trends Every Smart Person Should Know and Many Others You Will Find Interesting. And I promise it's the kind of thing that if you leave it on your bedside table or on your end table in your living room or any place like that, you will pick it up a bunch and look at it and want to show it to other people. So I highly recommend it. Ron Bailey, Marion Tupi, thanks for being on. Thank you for having us. Okay, I know we went long, and uh, I didn't mind because, one, I love these guys. You know, particularly Ron is w truly one of my oldest friends, and one day I will tell some very funny stories about my time 
under his wing. Uh, but uh, I actually am actually quite serious, and I know we like to joke about how this podcast moves product, but um, this is actually, at least for a good chuck of our listeners, um, right up their alley in terms of the kind of book that you'd want to have around. It's really digestible. It really looks good. And, um, um, and it tells an important story or stories that are really kind of hard to find out there. And I'm going to shove it down my daughter's throat, whether she likes it or not. Um, and, uh, also please remember that the, uh, 30 day free trial program at the dispatch is still up and running. You can go to the dispatch website to find it. Um, just, I think you just click on like the subscribe stuff. Um, and it's 30 days from the day you sign up. I will be totally honest. The, the hope and the dream is that we convert a lot of you into paid members of the community. Um, we are being quite frugal with what we spend money on, believe me, because uh, I could use more money. But uh, the fact is, is that we really want to grow this thing and make it better. And um, we've had some really wonderful success so far, but we're greedy for more success um, and to do so much more. And um, if you're interested in the kind of uh, non-catastrophizing but committed and principled conservatism that, that, that people like me and David French champion, or if you're just looking for good, good reporting um, and insightful commentary and analysis, uh, there are all sorts of reasons to subscribe to The Dispatch, and, um, and we would really appreciate it if you do it. So with that, uh, again, thanks to Marion Tupi and Ron Bailey and their book, 10 Global Trends Every Smart Person Should Know, um, should be available everywhere fine books are sold. And with that, I will see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. 